Welcome to the Articulated Meditation Podcast. My name is Douglas Caldwell, and you're listening to a weekly reading of the Meditations of Elizabeth Moreau. Each week, I will share one of the latest meditations written by my good friend Elizabeth. Her prayerful thoughts on various biblical passages provide a clear Christian voice in the midst of a rationalistic, materialistic world where many, and perhaps most Christians, are encouraged to hear only their own voices. For this reason, I believe her voice needs to be heard now more than ever before. The Matter of Life Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Probably the most divisive source of antipathy in our culture today is that of race. But as in most matters, the presenting conflict, that which is most obvious, is indicative of much deeper divisions and disagreements. Conventional wisdom suggests it is impolite to discuss such contentious issues. But that is precisely the wisdom that has led us to an irreparable impasse. The division is so deep that we cannot even discuss the different perspectives nor can we reasonably consider how best to proceed. However, I cannot imagine that the Lord is unconcerned, nor do I believe he is lacking an opinion on the matter. As Christians, we need to seek to have Christ's heart and Christ's mind, which are not primarily political. Christians should strive to understand our world through the lens of the gospel. This age is going to pass away someday, And during our lives, all Christians should at least try to see the world, human history, and especially human life through the eyes of God. The kingdom of God is within us, and Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And so, as with all other matters, the issues of racial strife in the United States today are penultimate, which is to say, while important, they are not the most important thing the ultimate thing which only can be Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So many points can be made, and I have written and rewritten this meditation in an attempt to say the most in the least amount of space. The breadth and complexity of the issues make it nearly impossible to offer a considered view of the multifaceted challenges we face as a nation. That is not to say that the issues involved are equally complex for Christians. And I am a pastor writing to Christians and for Christians. I'm not a politician seeking votes or making policy. In whatever context we find ourselves, I want Christians to think, to act, and to love as Christ Jesus does, at least as much as sin allows. As for the circumstances in our nation today, the racial hostility and violence, the incendiary rhetoric, and the like, the one thing Christians should know 
and understand is sinfulness, as well as our Lord's invitation to be saved and redeemed from the pits that we dig ourselves, whether individually or collectively. And thus, before going any further, let me make clear that I believe slavery was wrong in the past, just as it is wrong today. Discrimination based on the color of skin is indefensible, and I have no intention of trying to do so. Racial prejudice today is not in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is a fundamental denial of the Christian message of God's love for every human being, specifically based on his creation of human beings in his own image. The admission of such a thing, sadly, is not sufficient for many, and worse, It is a sad indictment for Christians that we need to clarify this position that the assumption of racism or even the possibility of racism exists among white Christians. But there you have it. No doubt it did and does today. As it turns out, Christians have compromised with culture before. And every time we move away from the gospel and flow and the flow of and flow with the culture, sin begins to pervert the gospel which is why I am writing the current series on Christianity, culture, and the church. Frequently, I return to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 as the basis for discussing our humanity and that it is the place from which all Christians should begin discussion about race. The creation of human beings, as described in Genesis, is the foundation of the whole Christian faith. We do not understand the nature and the meaning of Christian salvation unless we understand human beings as God originally intended in creation. Human beings are the imago Dei, the image of God, and live in the world as his representatives with dominion over creation and responsibility for creation. If we stop right there, we would have a sufficient argument against racial distinctions. Human beings, every nation, race, and tribe are made in the image of God and are owed the dignity and respect God's image possesses. Additionally, human beings of every nation, race, and tribe live in a fallen world where sinfulness plagues us and death awaits us, and as a result, human beings of every nation, race, and tribe are unworthy of the infinite love, grace, and mercy our Father lavishes upon us. The cultivation of racial schism merely compounds our unworthiness, but human history is the story of human arrogance, hatred, greed, lust for power, and more. That our nation has made race the most important issue of the day does not mean Christians should do so. Our God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and truth, John 4, 24. Therefore, the image of God is is something in us, not external to us, something spiritual and true, either enlivened by the Holy Spirit or deadened by the powers of darkness. I have this vision of Jesus flipping over our tables of race-baiting and virtue-signaling and demanding we answer, why are we exalting and arguing over rapping and not rejoicing in the gift? That is where Christians should begin our repentance as well as reflections on how to get along. Within each human being is a unique expression of the image of God, and we are to rejoice in one another, even as we plead with the Lord to have mercy upon us, for we are a sinful and stiff-necked people.
What Christians need to understand about race in America is that the manner in which the history of slavery and black Americans is told contemporarily is not wrong so much as it is a truncated history with both the amazing accomplishments of subjected people as well as the ever-present human inclination for sin ignored almost entirely. More specifically, the history of race in America is presented in such a way as to maximize the guilt and failure of white Americans, even as it minimalizes both the achievements and guilt of black Americans. The only reason to alter history, to revise and change it, is to achieve an end that history will not support. In this case, the desired end is the demoralization of white Americans, even at the cost of diminishing black Americans. Moreover, when we talk about race, we talk about blacks and white only. As if Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans and Jewish Americans are irrelevant to the discussion, which they are not. They, too, have a story to tell, which is intimately related to racial development in the United States. But their story does not support the current racial hostility and is therefore largely ignored. The single most important fact about black Americans in our national history is that in spite of all odds against them and every discriminatory effort to marginalize them up to and including early 20th century efforts to eradicate them using eugenics, Black people have repeatedly proven that they are stronger and more determined to thrive than are the powers of external discrimination, condescension, and hatred. For example, at the end of slavery, a tiny, tiny percentage of black people could read and write. Within half a century, over half the black population could read and write, a nearly unprecedented accomplishment in socioeconomic history. Additionally, in the South, the literacy rate among the black population was almost as high as the literacy rate among the white Southerners. Following the Reconstruction era, the Southern states began enacting intentionally discriminatory laws in every area of life, including excluding black citizens from education, from colleges, and from jobs, and more. The separate but equal era of Jim Crow laws was a farce in quality of education in access to public schools and services. And yet black Americans built schools, universities, and trade schools for themselves. They trained their own doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. Black Americans living under segregation and discrimination built their own neighborhoods and created their own economy in their communities. The first female in the United States to earn a million dollars was Sarah Breedlove, born to sharecroppers who were freed from slavery at the end of the Civil War. She became known as Madam C.J. Walker and built an enormous business by creating a line of hair care products and cosmetics for black women. The black unemployment rate in 1890 was lower than the white unemployment rate, and the same was true in 1930. During the blatant discrimination of the Jim Crow era, black Americans accomplished more, had greater employment, and enjoyed more success than many black Americans do today. In fact, the unemployment rate among black men was lower during the era of Jim Crow laws than it was at any time before 2019 and pre-COVID 2020. 
in spite of the gross inequities, inequities of segregation and discrimination, the income of black families during the Jim Crow era increased more rapidly than it did among white Southerners, and by the end of the 1950s, the black population was rapidly closing the gap between the races in standard of living. The accomplishment of black Americans who were treated only marginally better as freed people than slaves is nothing short of astounding. Why do we not hear about that? Why are we not celebrating the ingenuity, determination, and strength of people who refuse to be thwarted by the actions and attitudes of others? Why now, after having gained so much for themselves, do we find black Americans who believe they cannot succeed against the forces of white racism in America? At the moment that black Americans should be building their lives and futures on the shoulders of the giants who went before them, why does racism defeat so many before they even try? The answer is so simple. As stated above, when we begin to revise history away from what actually happened, it is to achieve an end that the actual historical facts will not support. The desired end was not the equality sought by men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and those who marched with him, even those who sought equal treatment under the law in simple voting. The desired end, which should come as no surprise to anyone, was to maximize vote and the attainment and maintenance of power. Civil rights legislation gave black Americans, indeed Italian Americans, Asian Americans, Greek Americans, Roman Catholic Americans, Irish Americans, and on and on, the freedom to do what they wished, freedom from the constraints of oppression and bias in the laws. But the legislation didn't stop there. The Great Society and War on Poverty were launched, and decline in many black communities began almost immediately. Rather than empowering black Americans, these programs were marketed specifically to black communities with political hacks going door to door encouraging black families to sign up for welfare. Lyndon Johnson promised people would be more self-sufficient, but the opposite was true. These policies and benefits made people dependent, and it was done intentionally by agencies staffed and paid to canvas black neighborhoods offering free benefits. The caveat was that a man could not be living in the home. We can debate all day long about the intention of dead politicians, but the outcome and implementation of the welfare state was the desolation of the black family. As stated by Larry Elder, women were incentivized to marry the government and men were incentivized to abandon their responsibilities. Mr. Elder, a radio personality, author, documentary filmmaker, attorney in Los Angeles, and most recently candidate for governor of California, argues that the greatest socioeconomic problem in America is the destruction of the black family. Consider the following. More black children live with their biological parents during slavery than do today. In the 1940s and 50s, illegitimacy among the black population hovered around 10 to 12 percent. By 1965, when Patrick Moynihan sought to curb illegitimacy among young black women, the rate was 25 percent. 
Today, 70% of black children are born to single mothers, and especially to teenage single mothers. Revisionist history attributes that to the legacy of slavery, but there is no indication, no data, no anecdotal accounts of widespread teen pregnancy during slavery. None. Even caught in the nightmarish trap of slavery, young black women considered their virtue to be a thing of value because they believed themselves to hold intrinsic value. The single most effective means of destroying black progress in the United States was the implementation of the welfare state and the ensuing destruction of the black family. Even as that is true, the rest of the story, that is, if black Americans uh, were their own nation, that nation would be the 15th richest nation in the world. Approximately 13% of the American population is black, which translates into about 43 million people. In a world population of 7.8 billion, the American black population constitutes 0.55% of the global population and is wealthier than over 92% of the world's population. That is not a fact that supports black oppression, and we never hear it. Interestingly, the top 20% of, black popu- of the black population in America holds the bulk of black American wealth and are continuing to broaden the wealth gap because they have the most advantages. The significance of this information is not because I consider wealth an accurate measure of well-being. I do not. Rather, the point I want to make is that irrespective of what any white person in America thinks of black people, no matter how racist some white person is, Black Americans are perfectly capable of accomplishing anything they wish to do, up to and including being president of the nation. Yet no one is honest about the fact that the socioeconomic success among black Americans coincides with intact families and good education. The black Americans who live with the benefits of the welfare state remain in largely segregated sections of the city, in squalored conditions, and with substandard education. A cadre of black scholars today struggles against the incessant drumbeat of racism and white supremacy that pervades our society and diminishes the dignity of black Americans. Among them are intellectual giants, such as the economist and social theorist Thomas Sowell, who at 90 years of age has written over 50 books and innumerable articles and columns and is arguably one of the greatest minds of our times. Educated at Harvard, Columbia, and the University of Chicago, Dr. Soule consistently and relentlessly wages war, intellectual war, against the liberal policies and propaganda that diminish black Americans, even as they give progressives the pretense of care and concern. Some 25 years ago, Sowell stated the obvious. Much of the social history of the Western world over the past three decades has involved replacing what worked with what sounded good. Titles I personally recommend are Black Rednecks and White Liberals, Intellectuals and Society, Intellectuals and Race, Discrimination and Disparities, A Conflict of Visions, Basic economy, Economics, and the Thomas Sowell Reader. These are just of the few of the books that I have read personally. He has written many more. 
The book's consistently ranked number one on the New York Times bestseller list, so to avoid drawing attention to Dr. Soule's intellectual challenges to progressivism, the editorial board simply stopped reviewing his books. His latest book, which I have not read, is Charter Schools and Their Enemies, an in-depth history and review of progressive policies around education for blacks, inner-city children, and the endless hypocrisy of progressive promises. In addition to Dr. Soule, other formidable scholars such as Walter Williams, distinguished professor of economics at George Mason University, and Shelby Steele, author, documentary filmmaker, and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute, bring bring tremendous intellectual powers to the discussion. Beyond these men, many more scholars and social commentators continue to speak out against the progressive policies that undermine basic black dignity and the worth of human beings. Larry Elder, mentioned above, is also another voice. And also uh, there is Jason Riley, senior fellow at the Manhattan University and author of Please Stop Helping Us and False Black Power. There are so many amazing black individuals, both historically and contemporarily, and they are ignored because they refuse to accept the narrative that blacks cannot succeed without white help and intervention. If you're curious to know more, simply go to YouTube and search for Black Wisdom Matters or search the internet for the 2020 documentary Uncle Tom and watch it. There is so much more to discuss on race and slavery than I can possibly write here. Moreover, there are people who have addressed the myriad of issues involved in far greater depth than I can and with better insight than I possess. So why does this matter? Why is this so important in my mind? Because dependent people are slowly diminished and lose the strength and beauty of the image of God within them. These policies are deeply entrenched in the progressive movement, the same progressive movement of Margaret Sanger, the founder of what became Planned Parenthood, through which she strongly advocated for the elimination of inferior races like Orientals, Jews, and Blacks, calling them human weeds. Today, over half of all black pregnancies are aborted, and 77% of Planned Parenthood clinics are located in inner-city neighborhoods where the predominance of black poor women are concentrated. Posthumously, Sanger is succeeding. Tragically, horrifically, she is succeeding in reducing the black population by aborting black children. Over 1,000 black babies are aborted every single day. How is this not horrendous? The image of God in human beings is fixed. We can mar it, hide it, deny it, reject it, and ignore it, but it never goes away. Human beings are meant for greater dignity and respect than we give one another, and often greater dignity and respect than we believe ourselves to have. Progressivism, as I hope I have made clear in the last meditation, is antithetical to Christian faith. It is an ideology convinced that human beings can, be, can make things right without the help of God and according to their own vision and wisdom. The outcome is awful. Slavery was horrible. That's not hard to understand, but people who pride themselves on compassion and care but ignore the cruel outcome of their ideas are much harder to discern. 
It is as hard for a compassionate progressive to admit degrading policies are wrong as it is for a slave owner to admit slavery is wrong. I see little difference between the two. Most people who know me are aware that I am disabled. My disability was avoidable, caused by failures on the part of the conference in which I serve, and more specifically, the failures in the leadership of the church I served. The actions of others, intentional or otherwise, changed the uh, the course of my own life and thus destroyed my plans and hopes. In this sense, I am, quite literally, a victim of others' choices. Be that as it may, my physical ability is aggravating and disruptive, but others have it far, far worse than I. I share this because of the fault to make the following point. Recently, I was speaking with a superior, as in a superior position, about a class on racism that clergy were strongly encouraged to take, especially white clergy. The man is more of an acquaintance than a close friend and he is aware of the circumstances surrounding my disability. After admitting to me, no, he didn't actually know anyone who is a racist, I pointed out what I considered flaws in the curriculum and asked him to at least consider other black voices and scholars on the subject based in actual historical fact, to which he responded in a very sympathetic and compassionate tone of voice, You've had it really tough and ha- a tough time of it, haven't you? Excuse me? What have my personal difficulties to do with the history of race in America? Intentionally or not, he dismissed and disregarded everything I said because I've had such a hard life. How utterly condescending. Because my physical body does not work correctly, my mind doesn't either. Does my poor health mean I am incapable of knowing God and discerning his will and intentions for human life? Behind his simple comment is the belief that I am a poor, sad victim, and therefore he can overlook what I said while graciously excusing me for thinking differently than he. I cannot express how insulting I found that remark to be, indeed his entire response. It doesn't matter to me what someone else did or did not do. I am no one's victim. To treat me as such is demeaning and diminishes the image of God in me based upon external conditions and circumstances. The reason I share that story is because it is precisely this attitude of superiority and condescension that is found in progressivism. Liberal and progressive policies create an underclass of black citizens, and politicians speak compassion and concern while treating them as if they are incapable of thinking for themselves. If I were a member of the black community, I would be so angry I could not see straight. As it happens, a great many black Americans are angry, and we all are watching it unfold in horrible ways. The worst part is that black Americans never had to live that way. They never had to be cheated of their worth and dignity. Only godless policies fail to incorporate the wonder and majesty of human beings. Bother to learn history. That we call ourselves Christians while supporting policies that God would abhor is a travesty. 
Over a thousand black babies aborted every day. In what alternative reality would the God of life think that's a good idea? How can corralling black people into inner cities with broken down housing, inadequate health care, and substandard education be called Christian? Throwing more money into the endless pit will not bring life the, bring to life the image of God within the people trapped there. Setting them free to strive, to grow, to take responsibility and risk, to succeed and fail on their own merits is the only strategy that awards black Americans the respect they deserve, something they themselves proved in the middle of Jim Crow segregation and discrimination. This strategy will not bring votes to politicians but it will unleash the humanity of the black population and in so doing reveal the image of God present in each person. Black Americans have, uh, have more than proven that they can accomplish whatever they dream if we simply avoid crippling them in the pride of our compassion. In Christ, Elizabeth Moreau. You've just heard the latest meditation from Elizabeth Moreau. If you've not already done so, you can find the written version of this meditation in Elizabeth's blog found on the Servants' Feast website at servantsfeast.org. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or whatever service you might use. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with others. Be sure to look us up on Facebook and like and share this podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, if you appreciate this ministry, please consider making a donation to Servants Feast Christian Ministry through our website. Join us next week as we take another deep dive into the heart and mind of Elizabeth Moreau.